Welcome, everybody. Good to see you. Uh, if you're new here, I'm Joel, and we are in our Advent season. We're just at the very end. This is obviously our last Advent Sunday, and a very Merry Christmas to you all. Joining us from Shoreham, uh, uh, from Oasis in North Hove, uh, the Villas in South Hove, at the Marina in East... I don't know why we always do it that way round, starting the West, go East. Probably quite wrong, um, but nevertheless, we have done. So welcome, all of you, uh, and Merry, Merry Christmas. I want to talk to you uh, for the second time from Mary's song. We started this last week. If you missed last week's message, you can probably download it. Uh, But we started looking at Mary's song in Luke chapter 1. And because it's Christmas and because we sing a lot at Christmas and there's a lot of caroling and worshipping going on, uh, it's good to look at the the original Christmas song, if you like. Uh, It's not as catchy as Jingle Bells or whatever, uh, Michael Bublé, but it is, it is a little bit more profound, a little bit richer in depth and meaning. So we're going to dig a bit further into it. Having uh, dug into it last week, we'll uncover some more gold. And, and really the theme of this message today is worship. Christmas is a season of worship. I don't know if you think of it like that. But it most certainly is, and it's appropriate that we consider worship. It's appropriate that we consider worship anyway. Maybe you don't know this, but worship is good for you. Uh, The social scientists increasingly agree with this. Worship is good for you. A friend of mine uh, from Minneapolis, Pete Pete Haas, uh, has uncovered all kinds of interesting statistics uh, that are relevant to this. Did you know, for example, that, uh, that the level of Depression that people suffer, generally speaking, people will suffer depression 22% less likely to uh, if they are regularly attending a place of worship uh, at the weekend. 22% less. So that's an interesting statistic. It's, it's from the uh, study that was done in the University in the States, University of Saskatchewan, which I know sounds made up. I know, I know it sounds like I'm out, but just be careful. All right? I know it doesn't sound like Oxford, but you might just be a pompous racist to think that Saskatchewan is not a real university. It is, okay, so just be careful. Uh, the second thing, uh, time management. Apparently, the same study suggested that people who are involved in regular worship generally improve their time management. Third thing, um, grades, like just marks, generally academically, people who are involved in regular worship uh, will improve in their marks. Fourth thing, uh, this will sound a little crazy, but mortality. I mean, worshippers still die, but, but the, the actual mortality rate, the, the uh, life expectancy, generally speaking, I know that sounds bizarre, but another uh, uh, psychological study published by the American psychologist in 2003, a paper called Religion, and spirituality linked to physical health, found there to be a link. And then finally, the University of Chicago published some statistical analysis showing that people generally have better sex lives if they're involved in regular worship. Just saying. Okay, so there you have a little bit more information. The USA Today uh, published a piece on it, uh, usatoday.com. You can look it up if you like, if you don't believe me. Revenge of the Church Lady, the paper was called, and I won't go into detail, but yeah. Now we know why some of us are here. So that's, that's some facts about corporate worship. Now, the theme of worship is obviously a lot bigger than that, and uh, I want to get to actually what 
what is most profound about worship. It's not the, the corporates. It's not even gathering on a Sunday that makes someone a worshiper. I want to talk about what happens inwardly, what happens in the heart, what happens uh, to us in the, in the most sort of um, hidden sense. And that's where we get to as we look at Mary's song. So let's have this read to us and then we will get into it. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So we were talking just now about some of the apparent external benefits involved with those who engage in external worship, going to church. And obviously we very much encourage external worship in that sense. Do go to church, go to church regularly well done you're in church well done keep coming okay so just to get that clear but worship in the bible is intentionally focused on what happens inwardly what is less visible on a human level god sees it god cares about what happens uh, in the inmost parts there's a there's a, a place where uh, david in the old testament prays a prayer of repentance he's, he's saying sorry to god for some horrible behavior of his own and he, he comes to God brokenhearted and sorrowful and he, he brings a, a prayer of, of great apology if you like to God he's, he's repenting and he says in Psalm 51 let me read the the, the words uh, that he uses he says surely uh, you delight in truth in the inward being you delight in truth in the inward being in the innermost parts God's delight is, is in what's going on in the unseen places. And in fact, that's an emphasis as the Bible goes on. The, the, the people who are called prophets in the Old Testament frequently deal with the difference between external worship and genuine internal worship. You want the two to coexist, but sometimes they don't. And God even says through the prophet Isaiah, uh, I, I've got tired of your festivals. I've got tired of your, your meetings, your gatherings. Uh, I, you know, close the door, go home. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's a strange bit of anatomy, isn't it? It's difficult to quite imagine what that looks like. Somebody whose lips are very distant from their heart. But that's the kind of description God gives of, of false worship, where we, our lips show up, but our hearts stay at home. 
Our hearts are somewhere else. And as far as God's concerned, that's, that's not worship. But when I read Mary's song, she's pretty clear on this. She starts off explaining what worship is rooted in for her. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Mary's saying that the most inward part of me, the core of me, is taken up, is, is aflame with worship, with wonder, with delight, with excitement, with joy, with desire for the living God. That's, that's what's happened to her. Worship isn't an activity for her primarily. It's not something she, she ticks off a list. It's not something she does outwardly to keep people happy. It's something that comes from the, the very seat of her emotions and desires. It's, what, it's, it's, it's changed everything for her to come into contact with this God, with, with, with the one who has actually physically, literally come to exist within her uterus, this, this, this God who's becoming flesh, who's become an embryo within her body, the baby she carries, this one, she's, she's not just got physical space for him in her womb, but her heart, her, her being <laughs> on a soul level is transformed. That's true worship. It's a transformation of the soul. It's, it's what we're taken up with, what our desires go back to, what our minds will tend to go back to what we most ultimately steer our lives by. Usually you can tell by a person's decisions in the long run. It will show. Worship will show. It will show in their decisions about other things. It will show by the fact that they clearly don't worship other things, <laughs> that other people expect them to worship. We expect you to worship money. We expect you to worship sex. We expect you to worship entertainment and comfort and pleasure and power. We expect you to worship control. That's, that's the thing to worship. The worshiper is someone who's realized those false gods, they don't, they don't inflame the heart in the same way, not, not anymore, because my heart's been won over. My soul is alive with worship. Mary puts it in those kind of terms. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And she is Worshipping in the sense that she's responding. It's important to clarify this. Mary is responding to something she's seen. Mary's responding to something she's come to know. Something has been revealed to her, and her worship is her response. Worship is that way round. Worship is not at its heart an activity of ours. Worship at its heart is a response to an activity of God's. It starts with him. It starts with his work, his revealing of himself to the man or woman to the point where it's almost a sort of an automatic follow-on. It becomes part of a process. He reveals himself. And my response of wonder is... is the praise and the worship that I bring. It's actually part of the fulfillment of it, if you think about it. Part of the joy of seeing something that 
pleases you is that you praise it. You praise it and you, that's actually part of the enjoyment of it. At Christmas time, when you're enjoying, I don't know, gifts or food or wine or whatever, it's kind of a completion of the joy to express it, to express gratitude, to say thank you. You don't say it. You don't say, oh, this, is, this tastes incredible. Or that film was amazing. Or did you see that goal? You don't say that out of a sense of trite duty. You say it because you can't help it. And actually, to not say it, you feel a little bit, little bit oppressed, repressed. You feel like, oh, something's been denied me. I wanted to say that. I wanted to share that. I wanted to express that. Because the expression of it is part of the enjoyment of it. And praise and worship works like that. It's almost more for our benefit in that sense. It's something that we need to get our heads around. We might imagine that we, we worship God to do him a favor. Do you think God needs our favors? We, we come and express our worship to God as a completion of the joy that we are involved with as he reveals his goodness to us. We see more of his goodness. The expression of praise is our privilege. It's our delight. It's something that we can, we can actually take greater pleasure in still. It's God's gift to us. And it's important for so many reasons to see that. That aspect of what worship is. It is a response to revelation or it becomes something potentially dangerous, potentially almost oppressive to us. Telling somebody to worship. Go and worship. Think what you're saying when you, when you confront someone with that, that command, that imperative, that demand. Worship now. Go. It's like saying, you know, love that person now. It wants. Go do it now. Love them. Now, you know, the, the Bible does command us to love the Lord and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So there's not wrong necessarily. The command is true. But the, the command understood purely as a cold command will actually result in the opposite. Because what the command comes to is a heart that's closed off to God by sin, by our own selfishness and false worship and replacement gods that we've put up in our kind of mental temples. And, and the command to worship God comes in as a kind of a, a, a demand upon us, which we feel not particularly warm to, but we know we ought to. I ought to worship God. I don't feel like it, but I ought to. So we start to say, uh, all right, I'll worship God. And we go through various external rituals or whatever. We do stuff even when our hearts are cold. And what happens? Usually our hearts get colder still. Our hearts get hardened because the law on its own doesn't create love for God. The law on its own will more likely create hatred for God. You just tell someone to just love God better. If that's all you say to them, what you're creating is a hater of God. Because worship doesn't work like that. It's a response to a revelation of how worthy of worship God is. When you see him, when you start to see start to glimpse his goodness and greatness, the response of worship comes from a heart that's liberated from law and rules, and delighted to offer praise. It's the obvious thing to do. We need to get that right or our worship will become hollow or even something worse. 
We need to see that it's a response to revelation. People need to see something of what Mary has seen. And she has seen it. And it's a wonder if you read Mary's song, it's rich. You could count over a dozen different attributes of God that are described subtly in the way it's written. It's not just a little praise song. It's not a ditty. It's not a radio jingle. It's not a Christmas number one. It's, a, it's rich. It bears our time and our reflection. She's seen so much. She's beheld the Lord. And it's a wonder. People will say, how could it be? You know, this can't have been written by a peasant girl, a Jewish peasant girl from the first century, you know, living in a nowhere place called Galilee, in a nowhere country, you know, in Judea, occupied by the Romans. A nothing person from a nothing place. She can't have come out with this. Well, if she did, it's a miracle. Because, well, she's poor and uneducated, so it's a miracle. I'll tell you what, it's a much bigger miracle than that. If you think that's a reason why she, she can't have written this, you've got, you've got another thing coming. It's a lot harder than that. Because worship does not come from anybody, naturally. It doesn't matter how educated they are, what a good poet they are. You could put Mary in Saskatchewan University. <laughs> And she'd still be completely clueless about what real worship is unless the Holy Spirit reveals the goodness of God. And the truth is that's exactly what's happened. You noticed as we've been going through, well, if you go through Luke's nativity, you go through Luke's description of the Christmas story, it's the Holy Spirit's all over the place. How will this be? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Almighty will overshadow you. The Holy Spirit is involved page after page in Luke's gospel. Luke's keen on you knowing that. The Holy Spirit has to be involved or worship is frankly impossible. If you want proof, I'll take you straight there. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says this. He says, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, what he's, he's, he's not saying we don't know how wonderful heaven's going to be. He's not quite making that point. He's saying here, human beings do not get God. Generally speaking, that's the story. With human beings, without help, we do not get it. We can't worship what we don't know. How can you worship someone you don't know? He carries on. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And follow me, I know this is a bit of a dense bit of the Bible that I'm reading to you, but it's so important to understand real worship. The natural person does not accept. Do you understand this? The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of God so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. 
what Paul's saying is effectively the world is divided into the two groups. Those who by the Holy Spirit have been given the gift of seeing why God is worth worshipping and the rest. Who it doesn't matter how many times you say to them, now raise your hands higher and sing louder. They won't really be worshipping. They'll be doing something external, but it won't be worship. No, we need the precious Holy Spirit to come. And God loves to give the Holy Spirit. God gives so freely. As you look at Luke's story, he keeps showing how the Spirit shows up to enliven and open and, and awaken people to the greatness and the goodness of God. What a gift he is and how desperately we depend on and need him. And it's worth also saying that Mary is a worshipper by virtue of the fact the Spirit has something to connect with. So she's, she is a, a peasant girl and she is from probably an illiterate community, but she goes to the synagogue, I reckon. Anyone would have done at that point in history. She goes to hear the, the scriptures read every week. And I'm sure you can tell from the way she's written this song, she likes the scriptures. She likes, she likes Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2. She likes the Psalms. She's quoting them. She's thinking about them while she's singing. She knows her Bible. So when the spirit, when the ignition, the flame comes down, there's some logs on the fire. If you never read your Bible because it's boring, when the Spirit comes upon you, the fire will go out quite quick. If you read your Bible a lot, drink it in, dig deep, understand it, get to know the story, get to know the pages, the people, the things they say. When the Spirit comes upon you, you'll start having a roaring fire. We need the Spirit and the Word. We need to be alive with something that's robust and substantial. Put some big logs on the fire this winter. <laughs> Get into this book. Get into the, the story that comes alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, having said all that, why is worship so important in our lives? It, it, let's look at Mary's example. Mary, wh why, why are we noticing her as a, a worshipper? Why is worship such a value for her? I think it's how she's finding her peace. The truth is that she's being invited into a dangerous life, right? She, she has been told you're with child. Everyone will know that you're not yet married. Everyone will know that you're pregnant. And everyone will question it. So you're going to go into a world where people will look at you differently there'll be shame attached to you especially in the culture in which you lived even danger you're going to watch your son grow up and be misunderstood again and again you're going to misunderstand him yourself and there'll come a time as Simeon said to her later on in Luke's gospel when a sword shall pierce your heart also Mary Mary will watch while her son is taken away and tortured and mocked and abused and crucified Mary will watch with horror. And she's got all of these things before her, and yet there's genuine delight in her. Her words are words of hope and joy. <laughs> she's not singing a lamentation. I would be. This would be a miserable song if I was given that calling. But her song is joy. It's all hope. She's learning to find peace through worship. 
She's learning how to settle her heart by being a worshipper. She's learning specifically to magnify the right things. That's where we get the word mag- magnificat, the name for the song. Magnify is what she does from the start. My soul magnifies the Lord. Magnify, what does that mean? Well, we have a big clue in the, the magnifying glass. What does a magnifying glass do? It makes things bigger, or at least look bigger. Can we make God bigger? I've come to magnify the Lord because God's small and I need to make him bigger. No, you can't make God bigger, but you can make God smaller in your imagination if you're not careful. And you can make God bigger in your imagination. That much is kind of up to you. So in spite of what I was saying a moment ago about worship being almost automatic, here's where the will does come in. Here's where we do make decisions. Here's where we have a part to play. Because you will magnify something. You can't help it. It's what we're like as creatures of instinct. We don't just handle data, do we? We're not calculators and computers and robots. We don't just handle raw data. We put the data together with stories and interpretations. We give it meaning. And we give it meaning on the basis of our imagination. We imagine a narrative. We imagine something. And our imaginations will shape the way we respond to life all the time. How How greatly have you imagined the God of the Bible? Have you, in your imagination, allowed him to become dull? I tell you, if that's the case, it is the cause of more of your problems than you could possibly know. (laughs) If If the God of the Bible has become small in your imagination, and frankly, hasn't he in all of ours? That's my story. The smaller he becomes in my imagination, frankly, the unhappier I am, the less generous I am, the less forgiving I am, the more selfish I am, the greater he is in my imagination, the freer I am. You need need to be like this girl and magnify the Lord. God, help me to help me to see and consider and behold and spend time looking upon you and your greatness. Let me magnify the Lord. Make me make it a habit, a daily habit, to take time to magnify you. It's like going to the dentist. You, you know that you will retract. You will. By default, you will go back to having a slim imagination of God. Just like when the dentist says to me, open wide. And then he has to say it again, 30 seconds time, open wide. Because believe it or not, I, I just don't. And you're the same probably as me. I open my mouth wide so he can see my teeth. I know you can't see my teeth anyway. I've got weird teeth. But the dentist can because he's got special tools. But if I open my mouth only for a little bit and start to retract because the muscles can't stretch for that long. And I just, uh, I need him to say, say ah. And kind of that's what a worship leader's job is. And they say, let's sing. And we're like, oh, no, I don't really feel like it. They're saying, say ah, magnify. Who do you magnify? Look, look at the words on the screen. Look at the script. Look at the Lord. Behold him. Magnify him with me. It's good for you. Keep your mouth wide open. Let's sing. Let's lift our voices. 
Let's, 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 let's see the truth as it really is. Let's get our imaginations wrapped around the data. Let's, let's see it as we should. Let's let it lift our hearts and souls as we magnify it together. And she's drawing out a few things specifically that she sees worthy of magnifying. There's loads, but I'll just pick out a, two or three before we finish just to, to, uh, to, to, to feed us today. She, she draws out in her magnifying glass, if you like, the attentiveness of God. I love this. Verse 48. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He's looked. He saw me. He knows me. He is attentive to me. He's, he's heard of me. You ever thought about this? I tell you, you must. It's very important because this is our story. If we know Jesus, we can say this like Mary. He knows me. He knows me. I tell you, it's very important to be able to say that. Just being told, as you may have been all your life, God loves you. It becomes a bit plastic, I think. It's kind of bumper sticker stuff, isn't it? Smiley face. God loves you. Starts to sound a bit dull. Bounces off me. God loves you. To know that he knows me takes my breath away. He knows me. He, he, he knows me through. And he really does. You, you need to know this. This is a special privilege of those who are his children. Paul, again, going back to 1 Corinthians, makes this point. He makes it in a number of places, but let me use this one for an example. Chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians 2 and 3 says this. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, and you expect him to say, he knows. But Paul doesn't say that. He says, he is known by God. If anyone imagines that he knows something, we, we, we're full of it, aren't we? I know this. I, I've been to the University of Saskatchewan. I know. And Paul says, you don't know. You don't know what you think. You, you don't, you, honestly, if you're building your life on your great knowledge of things, the most important thing ultimately is not what you know. It's who knows you. If anyone loves God, if the revelation of his goodness has caused love to spark, any spark, just a spark, tiniest kindling of a flame of love for him, you might say, well, I don't love him very much. My friend, just remember his love for you. This, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son us that he loved us when we see that surely love for him begins to flicker and Paul quickly jumps in and says if anyone loves God he's known she's known by God you're known by him how precious it's one of the great open wounds of humanity to feel unknown isn't it go through life you can go through family you go through a marriage Feel like no one knows me. My, my, my husband or wife, even they don't really know me. They don't seem to want to. We go through family. My parents don't really know me. No one's ever really wanted to know me. You feel lonely in a crowd, feel lonely in a, in a workplace, in a, in a neighborhood. 
in a school or a college, in a church, frankly. There's no perfect church. There's no perfect marriage. There are always going to be times where you feel a bit unknown. The best marriage, not being known, not being listened to, not being understood, not being heard. You ever felt like that? Isaiah knows about this. My, my, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. That's horrible to feel like that, that God doesn't care and doesn't know. Mary sees something blissfully wonderful. He's looked upon my humble estate. He saw me in my nothingness, just a peasant girl. He knows me. He knows me. He knows you. He knows you. It's a wonder, but it's true. The second thing she sees is that he's gracious. <laughs> That's, it's good to know when he knows you. Some of us with getting terrified, the more I say he knows me, the more you're thinking, I don't want him to. <laughs> Everything I know about me is not pleasant. I don't want him to know me. The more I find out about myself as I get older, I, I don't like it. I don't, I don't like what I know. She says in verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God, my saviour. My saviour. And she says, from behold, now on all generations will call me blessed. Blessed. They've said in, in various times in church history that she is full of grace. That's the name given to Mary, based on a, a false Latin translation. Full of grace. Mary knows better than that. She didn't get chosen to be the mother of Jesus because she's full of grace. The angel didn't say, oh, Mary, you're so impressive. Do you mind applying for the job? No, no. The Lord found her in her sin. That's why she calls him her saviour, right? That's what we need, a saviour. Jesus, he's come to save us from our sin. The worst things about you. He knows them all and he is gracious. He's full of favor. He's full of love. He's full of blessing. Those are the very things that have caused him to come on his rescue mission. He sees you in your worst and he sympathizes. He's full of care. He's compassionate. We don't deserve it. That's the whole deal. It's not going to change. It's never going to change. Gracious. Thirdly, sovereign. I love this. He's sovereign. I'll just say this very quickly. Verse 54, 55. He's helped the servant of his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now, I, I, I have to say this, but I have to say it with a bit of frustration because I know that this is the hardest thing to ever preach to 21st century people. <laughs> because we're convinced that any true answer out there, any great truth must be mainly about me. Right? That's it. And the Bible, presumably, if it's any good, it's about me. This book, if, if it's worth my time. And it's always you know, this end of the year we start saying, 2020, going to read your Bible. Gonna, let's all read our Bibles. Let's go through the Bible, through the year, read your Bible. And if you, if you, <laughs> you listen, you'll think, yeah, I'll give it a go. And by about page 50, you start thinking, this book isn't about me. And you kind of, I don't know what made you think it was, but you kind of thought maybe you one thought it might just be, you know, regular, I don't know, thought for the day or some kind of self-help guru giving you a few nuggets of, you know, you be you. And you thought, you know, by, by page 50, still it's mostly about people that lived a long time ago with huge beards and boats and strange 
deaths and strange behaviors, you know, bizarre family behavior. What's this got to do with me? I, I, enough. I'm, I'm having enough because it's not enough about me. And, and where we got this peculiar notion from in the 21st century, people who lived a long time ago didn't have this problem as much, just saying. Bit of a cultural thing, this. We, we assume that if it isn't about our individual peculiar bubble issue situation, it's irrelevant. And that's where we need to get off our high horse, humble ourselves and say, this book is valuable because it's about something greater than me. It's about a story. People like, who's Abraham? Singing about, who's Abraham? Abraham is very important to you. Believe it or not, he is. <laughs> and you think, well, how? Tell me. Read this book and find out. I'm not telling you now. We haven't got time. Read this book. There's a challenge. Find out for yourself. Read it. Take it seriously. Think about this story the way Mary does. This is why she's aflame with excitement, because she's seeing a, an incredible epic story reaching its fulfillment. You, you know, imagine a, a, you know, a, when the Star Wars film comes out, the ninth one, and it's the great epic. Imagine if it's amazing. It might not be. Imagine if it is. And, and, and it's getting rave reviews. Everyone is like, oh, it's mind-blowing. Even people who hate Star Wars. I'm, I'm converted. I get it. It's incredible. And there's one person who's like, yeah, I'm a little disappointed. What, what's, wrong with, why, what's wrong with you? Well, the reason I didn't like it is because I, I showed up on the set and I played a very important part. And I watched the film and I was only on for about two minutes. I thought it was about me, this film. Turns out I was just an extra. And that's kind of the way we are with our Bible sometimes. It's like, I, I thought this would... No, Mary's seen the whole thing is a great story. It's a glorious... And it's enchanting and mind-blowing and, and worth our wonder in itself. The extraordinary thing is in a strange and, and totally unexpected back doorway, it is about you. It's incredibly about you. And it will lift you up from any false sense of self-importance that you ever built. It's truly about you, but not the way you think it is. You start with letting the Bible be the Bible. Let God speak. Let the Bible be his story. and Find your story in his greater story. That's what Mary's doing. If you don't understand what she's singing about, read this book. You will. You will. Give it time. Give it your attention. And she's saying at the very close, she's saying who this is for. We noticed who this is for, this, this great saviour that's come into the world. Some people don't get what she's rejoicing about. She says the rich and the powerful, they're not part of it. And she says in verse 52, he's exalted those of humble estate and he's filled the hungry with good things. Who is this for? It's for the hungry for the humble. You hungry? That's how she said, she saw me and he saw me in my humble estate, she says. She's not impressed with herself. Again, that's counterintuitive for us. It doesn't fit with us, you know? If Mary comes along and says, oh, my humble estate, we'd be like, girl, stop apologizing. You know, we'd kind of, you know, get yourself up, you know, just put, you know, just come on, you got it. Believe in yourself more. No, that's not the message. Uh, the, 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 those people who, who believe in themselves, they're the ones, she says, they get sent away empty. That's what she's saying. 
It's not primarily about money so much. It's about what your confidence is in. Usually, the wealthy believe in themselves too much. Usually. So there is a correlation. And the poor have got a head start. The poor are usually quicker to come hungry and come humble. <laughs> you see that. If you ever served in a food bank, you know what I'm talking about. It's, it's, it's a humbling thing. So I, I need help. Jesus didn't come for people who say, no, I don't need that. I, I'm making my, I, I've got what it takes. I can, I, I can make 2020 fly. I'm amazing. I'm going I'm to make it count because I've got what it takes. I'm going to release the giant within me. And she said, those people, this is for the hungry and the humble, the ones who've given up on themselves. So I haven't got it. I, I've blown it. I can't do it. I've failed. I need a saviour. Is that you? I, I've got such good news for you. Jesus came for you. For the one who thinks, I've, I've come to the end of myself. You need to be humble. You need to not be impressed with yourself. Don't come to him claiming a thing. Don't come with anything to prove. Come as a desperate, humble, hungry beggar at his table and see what happens. You will be filled with good things. Good things. Imagine the Christmas table. <laughs> good things. Jesus came to give good things to the hungry. And if, you, if you've come to that place where you trust in Jesus, come to the table today. Take bread, take wine. Feed on Jesus. Feed on him. He comes to bring good things to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We need him so much. We do need him. We pray, God, over Christmas, teach us to see where our true mercies are. Teach us to delight in the best of foods. Lord, we don't want to spend our money on what does not satisfy. We want to feed on Jesus. Teach us how to do that by the help of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.